fifth chapter of James, beginning with verse 13 and through verse 15. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Our wonderful Lord, as we open thy word this morning, how we pray for that very unique and special illumination of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that our hearts will be very open, our minds eager as we look into the word of God. Hide the self-life of the one who ministers in the message in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. In these verses, we discover some of those beautiful characteristics of behavior that were a part of the life of believers in the early church. And actually, they become very meaningful, helpful guidelines for our behavior and our action. I think there is a close connection between verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. James, as we have seen, has warned against the use of profanity, against the taking of an oath in vain, especially in taking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name of God in vain. He is warned of the inevitable consequences of such behavior by saying that the consequence is judgment. And then he has expressed himself under the inspiration of the Spirit of, of God, as we have seen in his epistle, at length about the seriousness of the consequences of the way in which we speak, the way in which we use our tongues. And now it would seem that as he comes to the end of his epistle, he's very anxious to say that there are ways that the tongue can be used that will bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ that are God-honoring. He has just spoken in verse 10 of the way that the prophets spoke, used their tongues in the name of the Lord. And now he speaks of the beautiful, unprecedented privilege of communion and fellowship with God in prayer, and also in the joyful expression of our adoration of our Lord in praise. He says that in all of the difficulties and the disappointments of life, rather than ever resorting to recrimination or complaint or irreverent speech of any kind, Whatever the situation or the circumstances life may bring, we are first of all and above all to turn to God in prayer. This should be the most distinguishing characteristic of the contrast between a believer and an unbeliever. This is our unique high and holy privilege. We are invited, the writer of Hebrews says, to come freely before the throne of God's grace to ask what we will in time of need. Seven times in this very brief closing section, James mentions the privilege of prayer. We have a standing invitation to approach the throne of God. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ has given us direct access into his divine presence, and the way is never barred, and the door is always open. And so in all of the emergencies, yes, the tragedies, yes, and the joys of life, we 
can turn to him for inspiration, for peace, for comfort, and power to the very one who holds the universe in the palm of his hands and who, as we so well know, orders all things according to his sovereign will. With that absolute unequivocating assurance that indeed all things do work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And further with the knowledge, as Peter tells us, that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. The unregenerate man, the man with no relationship with the living God does not have this privilege. And in the inevitable trials and tribulations and the pains and the sorrows of life, he finds himself absolutely shorn of resources, abysmally lonely, empty, with nothing to which to appeal except that which is within his own skin. Because the Apostle Paul literally lived his life in the consciousness of God's presence and because he knew that intimate joy of unbroken communion with his Lord, he could write to the Philippians, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The unifying theme of these verses is the place and the power of prayer in a believer's life. Prayer constitutes the vital heart of the Christian faith and is the believer's energy source of victory during all of the vicissitudes of life. We do know that God has left certain things contingent on prayer which will never be accomplished unless we pray. As I have said so often, prayer makes it consistent for God to do what he cannot do unless we pray. James enunciates this principle in the fourth chapter in the second verse when he says we have not because we ask not. In other words, to put it very succinctly, prayer puts the power of God at our disposal. And it is important for us to realize that when we ask, We are asking for what Christ would ask. God can only answer prayer if the thing desired is in accord with the purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what our Lord meant in John 14, 14, when he said, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This means in accordance with my character, what I am, in accordance with my spirit, in accordance with what I teach, in accordance with my word, my truth. And so when we ask in his name, when we sign his signature to our prayer, we're asking for his decision, his choice of what is best for our spiritual and eternal welfare. We're asking actually for the fulfillment of Romans 8.28, Our very yieldedness in prayer will make it possible for God to answer our prayer because our very attitude, listen to this very carefully, makes his desires and ours one and the same. And so real prayer is surrender. 
Lady Stanley Jones suggested it is the will to die on the level of a defeated, empty, ineffective life, short-circuited life, and the will to live on the level of a victorious, full, effective, Christ-connected life. And then he reminds us that God has written this law into the very constitution of our environment. The mineral kingdom surrenders to the vegetable kingdom and is transformed from dead matter into living forms. The vegetable kingdom surrenders to the animal kingdom and is lifted into thinking, feeling forms. The animal kingdom surrenders to the kingdom of man and is assimilated into a higher life. The kingdom of man surrenders to the kingdom of God and shares the ultimate life, the highest life. Prayer is the wire surrendering to the dynamo, the flower surrendering to the sun, the child surrendering to education, the patient surrendering to the surgeon, the part surrendering to the whole. Prayer is life surrendered to life, the source of life. This necessity of self-surrender is actually the beautiful theme of the 15th chapter of John's Gospel. It's what it means to abide in Christ. You remember in that seventh verse, our Lord said, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you, because you'll ask exactly what he would have you ask. And when you ask what he would have you ask, you can be certain that prayer will be answered. By the way, tradition tells us that James certainly practiced what he preached. Eusebius quotes an ancient tradition that tells us that James spent so much time on his knees in compassionate prayer for his people that his knees became as hard as a camel's. And if you've ever seen a camel's knee, it's a horrible sight. Someone said a horse was probably made by God, but it seems like camels were made by a committee. You know, I don't know. (laughs) Remember, it was James who said, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And so, I have thought so much about this, and weighed the word of God so much about this, and one of the most wonderful things that ever came to my heart was the realization that the real purpose of prayer is simply to discover the will of God and then ask God to enable us to conform to that will. My life, verses Psalm 37, 5, Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. He will bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. We said the other Wednesday when we were talking about prayer, one of the first things that prayer does is it purifies the life and it beautifies the soul. We we become like those that we love and those with whom we associate. The man who spends much time with Christ in secret will unconsciously become Christ-like. Again, prayer produces holiness of heart, humility of mind, and tranquility in the soul. That's why Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, 3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. It's also true that prayer deepens the conviction of the personal presence of God's power and brings to life an inexhaustible source of strength, a sense of unity and oneness with God. 
In a strong wind, poorly rooted trees are blown down. These trees do not have to grow deep to reach water and for that reason have shallow roots. And so in helping us to grow, God may deny us surface answers, forcing us to put our faith roots down deep. And it is possible through prayer to develop such deep roots, such stability that no matter what happens on the surface of everyday life, all is solid and calm beneath. Our Lord's promise is, Lo, I am with you all way, even under the consummation of the ages. It's interesting, we're told that no matter how the sea may rage on the surface, that if you go down deep enough, you'll find there is at last a place of calm. Prayer changes things, and the first thing that prayer changes is the one who prays. And every true believer knows that prayer is the most powerful force generated in the world because prayer makes possible the intervention of God. It brings God's presence and power into life's experiences. And so James insists that believers must turn to God in prayer in all of life's situations. And so he says this is to be true first in the case of affliction. Actually, the more accurate word is the translation of that word in the New International Version that says trouble. And so James asks, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. The term primarily means the enduring of hardship. It has to do with misfortune and, and tragedy and calamity. It's not so much a reference to physical sickness as it is to some form of mental and emotional anguish or some very, very distressing circumstance. The same word, for example, is used by the apostle in 2 Timothy 2.9 to describe his situation when he says, I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And then in his admonition to Timothy, he uses that same word when he says, keep your head in all situations, endure, same word, hardships. Do the work of an evangelist, discharge the duties of your ministry. And so the response of a believer to these trying, testing situations is first of all to turn to God. Instead of indulging in destructive self-pity or indulging in bitterness or complaining, the believer is to turn to God as the source of refuge, strength, and guidance. We should ask God for wisdom, first of all, to understand the situation and then to properly relate ourselves to the situation. If, for example, we have been harboring the superating poison of sin in our lives, we may well be experiencing the disciplining love of our Lord and the adversity we experience may indeed be a blessing because it's the way of the cleansing of our hearts and the way in which we're drawn once again closer to our Lord. The trouble does have a way, as we all know, of making us very humble and contrite and more aware of how desperately we need him and his assuring, comforting presence in our lives. Furthermore, prayer gives us the grace to endure, to use the apostles' words, whatever comes 
bravely, triumphantly, so that it brings glory to his name. It was when our Lord was in agony, wrestling with the dark forces of evil at the moment of their strongest attack that we read in Luke twenty-two forty-four. he prayed more earnestly. And so James tells us that prayer is the proper response to trouble and it can turn trouble into triumph. When the Apostle Paul prayed that that nagging, irritating thorn of the flesh, which we believe might have been trachoma, might be removed, God did not remove the thorn, but gave Paul the grace he needed to turn that very weakness into strength. Unfortunately, in the lives of many believers, Everything else is tried and everyone else is turned to before seeking God in prayer. By the way, how often we hear people speaking of prayer as though it were a last resort. Well, there isn't anything else we can do. I guess we can still pray, however, when as a matter of fact, it ought to be our first resort. And what an example David is to us time and time again. He records in the Psalms his prayers, the prayers that came from his heart under the pressure of distressing circumstances and great personal agony. For example, in the 61st Psalm, he says, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to that rock that is higher than I. David was simply obeying what God said in the 50th Psalm, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Next, James gives us guidelines of Christian behavior in the case of the times when we're joyful. He says, Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. The word here that's used for merry or happy does not refer to mere boisterous hilarity. Actually, the verb describes an inner attitude of good cheer, of, of good courage, of good spirit. It's the word, interestingly, that the Apostle Paul used before he and his companions were shipwrecked at Malta. In the midst of all of their distress and, and panic, he urged them to be of good cheer because God told him that not one single life would be lost. The happiness, the joy, the cheerfulness the Apostle Paul speaks about is not the unwholesome laughter and humor. Yes, so often terribly empty humor of the godless. There's actually something very sad about the world's humor. I don't think I've ever seen all the way through one of those so-called situation comedies on television. So I don't really know much about them. All I know is that for me, whatever they're doing is pathetic. Maybe I don't respond right. But I seem to sense in the world of the godless a Pagliacci joy a superficial, a sort of a covering of a terrible emptiness and fear. And oftentimes the humor is based on innuendo or obscenity or even the denigration of someone or something that may be to me very sacred. As Peter says, the believer experiences the joy of the Lord. That's very special. 
Unspeakable, indescribable, Peter says, and full of glory. And James suggests that this cheerful attitude should express itself in singing praises to God. History tells us that the early church was a singing church. It was the characteristic of early Christians that their faith was expressed in exuberant, joyful singing. The Apostle Paul admonishes the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My, that paints an exciting picture of the early church, doesn't it? The very gratitude of believers for all they have in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word should find expression in songs and singing. The apostle writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. By the way, that's first admonition. That's what it means, by the way, to be spirit-filled. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Gratitude and singing go together. By the way, technically speaking, classically speaking, the Christian religion is the only singing religion on the planet Earth. There are religious systems that chant, and by the way, always in the minor key, because that is the mood, the dire mood of paganism. From the heathen world, we never hear anything in the way of joyous song, because for the heathen, the world is a sad, weary, frightening place. Only Christians exultantly sing in the major key. And oftentimes, the very way in which a body of believers Sing becomes a very favorable indication of the spiritual condition of the people. I always know when I'm in a church that's a happy church because when they sing, they sing that way. When ceremonialism began to stifle vital biblical Christianity and the organized church became corrupt and narrowed into increasing ritualism and apostasy. There was no more striking symptom of that change than the departure of congregational praise. And in fact, joyful congregational singing was one of the glorious characteristics of the Reformation. As John Stone beautifully expressed it, through the mercy of God, the Son of Righteousness at last melted the frost of centuries and the silver streams of the water of life so long sealed up and silent began once more to gush joyously over the world. Then along their banks arose the strains of Zion. Whenever spiritual life is found, it expresses itself as all manifest revivals of spiritual life distinctly attest in hearty praise. So it's interesting that the true church has always been a singing church. Barclay writes that when Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, wrote to Trajan, the Roman emperor, in AD 300 to tell him of this new sect of Christians, this is what he said. They're in the habit of meeting on certain fixed days before light where they sing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as God. Interestingly, in the Orthodox Jewish synagogue since the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, there has been, as most of you know, no music. 
Or when they worship, they remember a tragedy. But in the Christian church from the beginning until now, there has been the music of songs of praise for Christians remember an infinite love and enjoy a present glory. Alfred Plummer, an excellent expositor, suggests interestingly that these two imperatives could be equally transposed. Is any among you in trouble? Let him sing praise. Is any of you cheerful? Let him pray. Prayer should not be merely the plaintive cry of the distressed. It is equally appropriate when joyous feelings prevail. Songs to praise, however, are only suitable when the heart is right. And indeed, when the heart is right, the committed believer can sing in the distress and sing in the trials of life. When Paul and Silas were imprisoned and their feet fastened hard in the stocks and their backs bleeding from the beatings they had received, we're told that they sang hymns to God. One of the things that is immediately lost when a believer is out of the will of God is the joy of the Lord. And where there's no joy, of course, there's no song. It's important to recognize, too, that the singing of the early church, and let's get this straight, was in the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Songs were sung in praise to him. Because of that, they were based on the word of God, not on the mere poetry or men or the emotional sensationalism of mere experience-centered theology. They were not frivolous, empty songs, but sacred songs of praise, expressions of the joy the soul finds in the salvation provided in the wounds of our Redeemer. Now James gives us another guideline of behavior in the case of the sick. And he says in verses 14 and 15, Is any uh, one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, James is speaking here about physical suffering, illness, and the word sick means to be without strength. It describes the debilitating effect of illness. Its most common usage would be bodily weakness that comes when someone is very, very ill. But it also may denote mental, moral, or spiritual weakness. And though it would seem the primary reference is to physical weakness, that very physical weakness could very well have a spiritual aspect. Sickness, of course, as we shall be saying further, is not always the result of sin, but sometimes it is the result of sin. We shall speak about this more in a moment. But whatever the circumstances of illness, intercessory prayer is appropriate, and James is very specific about what ought to be done. I believe with all my heart and the miraculous healing power of God, but I do not believe in divine healers since present-day healers are not able to duplicate the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ in healing and in raising people from the dead. I am thoroughly convinced that the healings performed by him and the apostles were not for the day in which we live, nor have they ever been for the church since the word of God was at last completed. I believe, however, that every believer has the right on the basis of the finished work of Christ to approach the throne of grace to ask for help in time of need. 
Every believer has the right to ask for the will of God with respect to his own recovery from sickness and illness. And that on behalf of the pleading prayers of his people, God does marvelously intervene. It became a beautiful characteristic of the true church that there was compassion for the sick and the suffering and the alleviation, by the way, of sickness and suffering became the very essence of the Christian faith and and life. As a matter of fact, it was the influence of the compassion of the church that was responsible for the establishment of hospitals. They were never known before. James says, is any one of you sick, he should call for the elders of the church to pray over him. The elders are the spiritual leaders of the church, and this responsibility falls within the purview of their ministry. The ministry of the church, and oh, how far the church has gotten away from this. The ministry of the church was to be carried out and carried on by the elders. The word of God is explicit on this. They were the under-shepherds of the flock. This was part of their ministry. Take notice of the fact that it is the duty of the sick person to call the elders. Throughout the years of my ministry, there have been a multitude of instances when someone was sick and they wondered why the pastor or the elders never called on them. In practically every instance, the pastor and the elders never knew they were ill. Which reminds me of a delightful story of a lady who called up the pastor of a church and she said, my husband is extremely ill and I would like you to come and see him. And so the pastor said, well, are you a member of our church? She said, no, I'm not. And then she named another church. And he said, well, why don't you call for your own pastor? Well, she said, bless your heart. My husband has a very serious contagious disease, and I certainly don't want to expose our dear pastor. In preaching and teaching, we are commissioned to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. But in the matter of prayer for the sick, we have to await the call of the sick. Someone said it's not the business of the elders of the church to go scouting for the sick. And so unless you've notified the church officially and requested someone to visit you, there is no room for complaint whatsoever. And remember, the first step is to be taken by the sick, not the elders. And when summoned to the bedside of the suffering, the elders are to pray over him or her. This is the sensible, the practical thing to do. And furthermore, we should clearly understand that the elders have no miraculous healing power. Elders are no different from other believers. The power to heal comes from the one to whom the prayer is offered. But because elders are the spiritual leaders in the life of the local congregation, and because they are especially selected because of their scriptural qualifications, for example, 2 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, verses 5 to 16, the elders would not be elders unless they were men who walked with God, unless they were men of prayer. And James says, as we see in verse 16 of chapter 5, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and any local church is especially blessed when the elders of the church are spiritual men 
And never forget that the faith is not placed in the elders, it's placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle says concerning the ministry of the elders to the sick, that they are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, because oil was used extensively in medical practice of the East, there are those who have thought that there was medicinal value to the use of oil. And there are scriptures that refer to oil for such medicinal purposes. For example, in our large story of the Good Samaritan. However, we cannot imagine that oil would be a fitting medical application in every kind of disease. And so the anointing to which James speaks had no doubt, listen carefully, a symbolical, sacred character. In the Old Testament, you remember the coming one, the Messiah, the Christ, meant the anointed one. The one on whom the Spirit of God would be poured out without measure. And so in the anointing of the sick, there would be a recognition of the symbol of the Holy Spirit through whom answers to prayer come and by whose indwelling presence we have even the promise of the resurrection of these physical bodies of ours. Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The implication being that the healing of our bodies is a direct ministry of the Holy Spirit. And notice that James makes it clear that the anointing of which he speaks is to be in the name of the Lord, which reminds us of how in the third chapter of Acts, Peter said to that cripple at the gate beautiful, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now it's startling to realize if not shocking, that this scripture is what gives the Romanist priests a warrant for practicing the sacrament of extreme unction. By the way, sacraments in the Roman Catholic theology are a means of salvation. In fact, necessary to salvation. And in that ceremony, the priest anoints the eyes, the ears, the nostrils, the hands, the kidneys, the feet of the sick person considered to be near death in the belief that the application of such previously consecrated oil is an effective medium of forgiveness in the case of those who are no longer able to make a conscious confession of sin and thereby receive priestly absolution. In explaining this, a Catholic writer says, extreme unction is a sacrament in which the sick by the anointing by holy oil and the prayers of the priest receive spiritual succor and even corporal strength when such is conducive to their salvation. This unction is called extreme because it is usually the last of the holy unctions that are administered by the church. And then the scripture that is cited for this final sacrament is James 5 verses 14 and 15. Well, what is intriguing is that for seven centuries, the expected result of the anointing was recovery, not death. It was designated as a means of cure, even in the Catholic Church. Not a preparation for death. The sacrament of extreme unction began in A.D. 1852. 
By the way, the Catholic theologians tell us that the scriptures only furnish the germs for the doctrines with which the church develops. For example, purgatory. It's interesting, the scripture then contradicts this so thoroughly. For example, as Dr. Strauss says, by no stretch of the imagination could one arrive at such an interpretation as extreme unction. No mention is made, for example, of priests, but of elders. No mention is made of any previous consecration of the oil. Actually, the oil wouldn't be any different than the muddy waters of the Jordan River into which Naaman was commanded to dip seven times. Naaman was healed of his leprosy in response to his faith and obedience, not because there was any healing powers in the waters of the Jordan. Certainly the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit who lives in and watches over us. And the oil only has significance in that the anointing was performed in the name of the Lord. And that implies that the elders were acting in trustful dependence upon our Lord Jesus Christ and his authority. And believers can be assured that God's presence and power are available to us all. You remember when our Lord sent out the twelve in the sixth chapter of Mark to preach and to heal? Anointing with oil was part of the command because this was a common practice of the Jews. As a matter of fact, when a Jew was ill, he never went to a doctor, he went to the rabbi. And the rabbi, before he prayed for him, inevitably anointed him with oil. Well, if the question is asked why elders were commanded to anoint with oil, I think the only possible answer is that the oil was an aid to faith. Our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, often healed with a word. In many instances, he aided the faith of the recipients of compassionate concern by some meaningful gesture or some act of symbolic significance. For example, he touched. Peter's wife's mother, were told, and the fever left her. When those two blind men called on him to have mercy on them, he asked, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And when they replied, Yes, Lord, were told, He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. As a matter of fact, he touched the tongue of the deaf mute. He touched the casket of the dead son of the widow of Nain. He, he touched the ear of Malchus. He touched the leper and made him clean. But in none of these cases or any of these cases did he need to touch. He could have healed and cleansed and restored with a word. But he regarded faith in himself as of greater importance than physical restoration. And to aid faith, to potentiate faith, he touched. He called forth and strengthened faith. Now there are those who do not need such aids to faith. For example, it wasn't necessary for our Lord to go to the home of the centurion whose servant was sick and touched the ailing man. So great was that centurion's faith that he said to our Lord, Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. No wonder our Lord said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And the servant was healed in the selfsame hour. In the case of Jairus' daughter in the 8th chapter of Matthew, Although our Lord told Jairus not to be afraid but to believe, he nevertheless went to his home and went into the bedroom where the little 
girl lay in death and taking her by the hand, he said, arise. In the case of that fascinating blind man in the ninth chapter of John's gospel who was not evidently seeking healing, our Lord took the initiative. We're told that our Lord spat on the ground and made clay and put it on the eyes of the blind man and commanded him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he obeyed, he received his sight. It's thrilling that when the Pharisees tried to browbeat that blind man who'd received his sight into denigrating Jesus, he replied scornfully, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one who was born blind? If this man were not the Son of God, he could do nothing. Because they could not refute his irresistible logic Their implication also that the Lord Jesus Christ was an imposter, frustrated and infuriated, they excommunicated the man. On the part of the blind man at the beginning, there may have been very little faith, but aided by the anointing of our Lord, not with oil, but with spittle and dust. Then his faithful obedience, his perhaps very meager faith, was gloriously vindicated and became... Strong and triumphant. Not merely in the receiving of his sight, but most of all in discovering who Jesus Christ really was. So we must say, and I think it ought to be enunciated very clearly, that there is no sacramental grace or healing power in oil any more than there is in dust and spittle or the muddy waters of the Jordan. The point is, God heals people miraculously and uniquely ways, oftentimes without anointing with oil, and even without elders. What really saves the sick? What really saves the sick? Verse 15 declares, it is not anointing with oil, but the prayer of faith. The following phrase, and the Lord shall raise him up, clearly indicates that the word save is speaking of bodily healing. By the way, the same word is used when Jairus asked our Lord to heal his little girl. I pray thee come, he said, and lay hands on her that she may be healed. It's the same word as same. The prayer of faith is the prayer that comes from belief and confidence and trust in God's promises, God's word, God's love, and God's power. Now, the difficulty that immediately occurs, and we're just going to have time to touch on this, is connected with what appears to be the universal, unconditional terms of the promise of verse 15. However, the explanation of the difficulty is to be found in the fact that in all promises, the condition is implied in so far as it is the will of God. Dio volonte. The sovereign will of God is, of course, the implied condition to the answer of all of our prayers. Everything is subject to God's will. But as a matter of fact, God never fails in his promise to heal a believer. Never! I always say that sometimes God heals a believer miraculously and instantly. Sometimes God heals a believer through the marvelous administration of surgery and medicine but God always heals a believer totally and gloriously in the morning of the resurrection. So God never fails to heal a believer. 
As we previously saw, often it is our very prayers, however, that make it consistent for God to do what he could not possibly do, except as we pray. And now comes the added assurance, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. There is the recognition that sickness may be due to sin, and so when sickness does come, it is desirable for a believer to examine himself to determine whether before the Lord the sickness is because of personal sin. By the very construction that James uses under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, it is made clear that this is not always the case. It is wrong to assume whenever a believer becomes sick, it's due to sin in that believer's life. But where sin is responsible, the words of James assure the sick believer that the situation is certainly not hopeless. God Indeed, will not withhold healing because of the past, but offers full and complete forgiveness. You remember when those four men brought their paralyzed friend into the presence of our Lord Jesus, letting him down through the roof? We read when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God only? Immediately Jesus knew in his heart that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking of these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up and he took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. A clear indication that the sins of the paralytic evidently were responsible for his condition, were forgiven. It was the sight of that paralytic taking up his mattress and walking that provided unmistakable evidence that his sins, which had very clearly resulted in his affliction, really had been forgiven. The distinguished physician Dr. S.I. McMillan says, Peace does not come in capsules. This is regrettable because medical science recognizes that emotions such as fear, sorrow, envy, resentment, hatred are responsible for the majority of our sicknesses. The Mayo Clinic estimates that as high as 85% of all of our illness is in the area of our emotions and most of the time due to the superating poison of unrelieved guilt. We all know there's a whole developing branch of medicine called psychosomatic medicine. Ethel Barrett suggests, ask God to heal you of your critical spirit, your slippery tongue, your capacity for holding a grudge, your dishonesty both with yourself and with God, and making these things right may be the means of your healing. Some may wonder why James doesn't mention calling a physician. Well, first of all, because they were very rare in those days and their skills were very limited, but most of all, they were fantastically expensive. Only the wealthy could afford their services. Remember that woman with the issue of blood? There's something amusing about it. She told our Lord that she spent all of her money and never got any help, never got any place. She wasn't any better. She said she was worse. 
For most people, it would be impossible to ever receive the services of a physician. However, the medical profession and the discoveries of medicine are for us a gift from God. God has given men the gift of intelligence with endless vistas of knowledge to be explored and endless discoveries to be made. And it is a divine law in every area of life that we should employ every means to secure blessing and health. When we are ill, we should pray as if all depends on prayer, and we should avail ourselves of all medical skill and knowledge as if we had no other resource. It is increasingly recognized by the medical profession that medical and spiritual factors in healing are closely related and go hand in hand. The spirit, mind, and body are not separate entities. This has opened up the vista of what we call holistic medicine, but are most intimately intertwined and affect one another in a way that we never realized before. The impact of spiritual factors upon our physical health is undeniable. A sick spirit can make the body ill, and certainly the healthy spirit can exercise a beneficent, indeed a marvelous influence upon a physical ailment. It is an undeniable fact. And oh, how many physicians have shared this with me. It is an undeniable fact that prayer potentiates the defeat of disease and makes the skill of the surgeon and the medicine administered effective. Now, prayer is not a magical charm. In this sense, it's a very valid medicine. The skill of the doctor, the resources of modern medicine, often finds invaluable aid in the prayers of God's people and even in the fellowship of God's people. However, let's get this straight. The ultimate object of prayer is never physical healing but spiritual blessing. As we said a moment ago, God always heals the trusting believer anyway. That's the great glorious promise of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Our time is gone, and the Lord willing, we'll continue this message. In the words of James this morning, the Spirit of God has taught us, beloved, exactly what we should do in the time of distress and trouble. Exactly what we should do when we are ill, when we are sick, when we are suffering. Ours is the glorious privilege of prayer. We left out one. God has told us exactly what to do when our hearts are exuberant with joy. Ours is the glorious privilege of prayer. And we worship and love a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God whose unequivocating promise is, Jeremiah 33, 3, call upon me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Our wonderful Lord, we realize this.